Hi, I'm just laughing, I'm trying to stop myself laughing. Um, how do you solve a problem like Boris? I, uh, I've probably said before, I, I voted for Jeremy Hunt with a very heavy heart. I went through to the Perth hustings and uh, I watched Boris. He walked right past me. He was like two feet away from me with his uh, police uh, minders. And I remember being shocked at just how short he was and uh, how portly and uh, and his, his posture is exactly like um, sort of as if as if he's constantly walking forward and leaning into a strong wind, you know, round shouldered and uh, and leading with his nose. I voted for Jeremy Hunt because I was convinced that all of the comments made by people like uh, Max Hastings and Steve Norris and Ian Hislop and other folk whose opinions I, uh, I was pretty certain weren't actually made maliciously. Uh, they all had the same tenor and tone, which is, for God's sake, don't elect this person to any important office because they'll make a mess of it. So I voted for Jeremy Hunt, despite the fact that I thought he would frustrate the Brexit process. And... Uh, of course, right now, as we head into Christmas, it's looking as if the, the Boris Johnson shtick um, is coming badly unstuck. Andy McIver in The Guardian, a couple of days ago, former Tory director of communications in Scotland, was saying that only a fool would write off uh, Boris because he's bounced back so many times before. I looked at uh, the actual record of Johnson. Uh, for example, the fact that he's collapsed the Tory majority in his constituency. Um, I can't remember the name of the constituency. It's a former sort of Battle of Britain constituency. Is it Blexley? Um, where's his constituency? I'm trying to remember. But it's, it's a former aerodrome, I think, uh, or it hosted an aerodrome, a famous aerodrome in the Battle of Britain. So a, a, a solid blue constituency, and I think he's collapsed the, the majority. And uh, as a London mayor, he got through in the skin of his teeth the second time and uh, was competing against the first time, certainly, uh, a fairly unpopular and of course now much more unpopular uh, Labour politician Ken Livingstone who um, was uh, humiliated in that BBC uh, studio on the stairs on the way to the BBC studio uh, by a fellow Labour MP and being accused of all kinds of anti-Semitism and so on. So Ken Livingstone as I say had problems long before that famous for his collection of newts and for his hard left approach to politics so Johnson is, is less successful than people think. I mean, beating Corbyn in, in 2019 and, uh, and managing to rally the people behind the idea of getting Brexit done when the Parliament had frustrated the Brexit process for three years, those are not necessarily great achievements. So he's, he's less successful than you'd think. And Raphael Baer in The Guardian today is, uh, is suggesting that the... Uh, there's a real problem in Johnson's whole approach, and it was always there. It was there if you if you cared to look. Uh, and this, and he, and he characterises it as Johnson himself has characterised his approach as cakeism. Famously, you can either have your cake or you can eat it, but you can't eat your cake and have it. So if you want to, you can't spend money twice. If you spend your money now, you can't spend it later. And Johnson's um, cakeism, this idea that. You can make the world the way you would like it to be, simply demanding by demanding that it is, or by acting as if it were, and that other people will accommodate you. 
a bit like um, overtaking dangerously on an A road. Other people will probably pull to the side. You know, people, you'll discover if you act as if the world owed you something that the world will act as if it owes you something more often than you'd think. Um, and uh, and this cakeism, this uh, Johnsonian approach to life, not just politics but to his personal life as well, this idea that you can have a whole lot of kids with different women and it'll probably work out, the kids will probably be okay. They might lack their father's um, daily affection, they might lack all kinds of things, but it'll probably work out. You, you, can be, you can act in ways that other people would regard as irresponsible, but it'll all be fine because of some special exemption that applies to you. Um, his, one of his teachers, of course, famously at Eton, wrote a letter to his father complaining about this. Boris seems to regard it as a terrible imposition when we ask him to obey the rules that everybody else uh, is asked to obey. And of course, this, this as an individual's uh, attitude is, is not going to break, bring down a whole system. But if everybody else did it, it would. Um, if, if you manage to provoke a master at Eton to move to Harrow because they can't stand your behaviour and the fact that the school isn't addressing it, not, not that I think that ever happened, but if that did happen, it's not going to bring down Eton College. The trouble starts when you become Prime Minister and you try to adopt that manner because governments can bail out banks and they can bail out hospitality industries. But unless the IMF arrives, nobody bails out governments. So the, uh, the, 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 the real limitation of Johnson's approach to the world is when you try to impose that on a nation state and the rest of the world doesn't owe you anything. And uh, fundamentally, the resources of the, the state are the, the, the resources of the, uh, the coastal waters and the, and the, and the industries in the, in, the, in the country. And therefore, for example, when you say that you want low taxation and high spending, and all good things at the same time. Uh, when, you, when you basically do what Lyndon Johnson did in the 1960s in America and decide that guns or butter may be an old choice, but it's not an actual fact, a necessary choice, and you can choose guns and butter. When you try that, it all goes wrong. There's another article, that, uh, other than the one I'm going to talk about now in The Guardian today, suggesting a professor of um, political economy suggesting that Rishi Sunak is actually deliberately undermining uh, Johnson refusing to fund to the fullest extent all of the projects that he favours. But of course, what the professor is doing is coming from a left-wing perspective. I'm not suggesting he's a modern monetary theorist guy, but that kind of thing, that belief that government uh, projects pay for themselves, and therefore Sunak is, uh, is basically undermining Johnson for no very good reason. The only reason the professor can come up with is that uh, Sunak wants to finance uh, tax cuts in 2023, um, as a prelude to becoming Tory leader, but of course, if it really were if it really were the case that Sunak had to rein in public spending now in order to achieve that later, then Sunak is accepting that resources are limited and that choices have to be made. And the trouble with Johnson is that he doesn't seem to recognise that at all. So he probably construes um, Sunak's opposition to some of these spending priorities as being simple cussedness or. Um, uh, manoeuvring for uh, the top job. There's an old saying which is that nobody can imagine anybody doing anything for a reason that they themselves can't hold. So it would be very hard for Johnson to look at anything Sunak did and think of it um, in any way other than a, a Johnsonian type intention. There was a, a comment made today in one of the papers that the pictures taken of uh, Johnson and uh, Dominic Cummings and others in the garden at number 10 drinking wine and cheese last May uh, it looked as if the picture had been taken from uh, Sunak's accommodation. And of course, that's pure mischief ma making. And once this nonsense starts, once you start thinking, who, QE Bono, who benefits? You, you think the only person that placed that story 
with Liz Truss or Dominic Raab or somebody else who might have leadership ambitions because they're trying to sabotage Sunak. Bayer's suggestion is that um, Johnson is, is um, now in a, a channel that is well-worn. Previous Prime Ministers have undergone exactly the same thing. What tends to happen is the things that caused you to rise cause you to fall, not because any new information arrives, but because people now see differently um, what previously they saw and interpreted to your advantage. So Johnson was seen to be this freewheeling um, buccaneer, this person for whom normal limitations didn't uh, exist. And uh, that made him attractive to the uh, the public in, in 2019, when the public thought that what was needed was some chutzpah, um, some daring, um, uh, who dares wins, um, or in this case, who doesn't really care wins. And, uh, and Bear says, if you look at the fall of, for example, Gordon Brown and Theresa May, you can see the same thing playing out, albeit in, in, in the details being different. So the steadfast, stoical, um, ordinary competence of May and Brown, as, as they like to be seen, uh, as they like to portray themselves, that became their downfall um, in, in 2010 and 2017, respectively. Because they were seen in, in those, and it's interesting if you think about it, these were election periods. That uh, that lack of dash uh, was seen to be particularly problematic when you were proffering uh, leadership or failing to convincingly proffer leadership in leadership in, in election campaigns. So the uh, this is no time for a novice served Gordon Brown reasonably well um, when it was the financial crisis and he was trying to you know imply that uh, the Conservative opposition. Uh, wouldn't be able to cope with the, with the difficult times. The trouble starts when it's 2010 and the difficult times have already arrived and they seem at least in part to be a consequence of your earlier misgovernment and you're then presenting yourself as being the person who has got the kind of um, deep insight and strength of character to lead. It's an old, old question whether governments really can lead and whether p politicians should offer to lead. There's a famous article by a guy called Foley calling it called The Emerging British Presidency and he suggests that the public have got this uh, tendency to construe politicians as leaders when in actual fact they're better thought of as managers. And what ends up happening is that the, the politician posits themselves as being the, the leader that the public are already minded to uh, think they need. And you end up in this ridiculous situation where what are really legalistic, narrow, technical um, fiscal and monetary decisions uh, and, and questions of efficiency in, in social policy, and they become reduced to um, questions of leadership and, uh, and, and grandstanding. And, and, and in that regard, Johnson is the perfect modern politician, um, because what he does is he reduces everything to simply uh, oppose a strut, uh, a declaration, a demand. Um, and, uh, for example, open letters to Macron uh, trying to humiliate and upset him uh, before the, the French presidential election um, in order to try and bring about a change in this French attitude to fishing licences and, and the prospect of, I think, a Guernsey electricity um, uh, shut off. So the kind of things that Johnson does um, are, uh, are exactly the kind of things that appeal to a particular group of, uh, of voters who think that uh, politicians are all in it together and weak uh, and they should stand up for themselves and stand up for the country. And this whole narrative, this approach, um, is in actual fact predicated in falsehoods. And to some extent, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Bear's argument, 
Um, hard choices really do exist, uh, and the idea that you can wish them away with a pose is simply false. So what happens is, all of your strengths, all of that chutzpah, all of that uh, daring, all of that devil-me-care behaviour is suddenly seen differently, and you're seen to be entitled and lazy, and it's seen that you're demanding others make sacrifices that you won't make yourself. So Johnson is now falling um, in exactly the same way that May and Brown fell, because what was seen to be a strength is now interpreted as a weakness. It's not. It's like, for example, having a partner that you previously um, found really attractive because of their, uh, you know, their spont spontaneity, and then you you begin to see that over time as irresponsibility. Nothing really has changed. Their behaviour hasn't changed. What has changed is your judgment of the implications of their behaviour. And, uh, and that's the position we're in now with Johnson. The implications of his behaviour look differently. So that the bluster and the wishing away and the disregarding of problems, um, all of that uh, cakeism is now seen to be just um, laziness and presumption and an unwillingness to face hard choices. So it's a fact that you can't have the benefits of EU membership without being a member of the EU. And to insist that you can is just a falsehood. To insist that Northern Ireland can be in what is effectively a customs union with the Republic without actually having a border of some sort, even if it's only an administrative and paper-based border uh, at uh, Stranraer as the trucks get onto the, the ferries, to suggest that is a falsehood. To suggest that um, every single thing that uh, is limiting you in terms of uh, hard choices when it comes to levelling up the North or a, a so-called green industrial revolution, to suggest that that can all just be wished away and that you don't have to worry about the, uh, the additional 500 billion in debt that would have to be issued to pay for it, uh, having already spent 500 billion that you didn't anticipate spending on COVID. All of these real hard choices exist. And uh, the, the, the Johnsonian approach, which is to simply say, uh, you know, um, stuff and nonsense um, and uh, and let's proceed on the basis that uh, in order to get the right outcome, you have to look confident. Um, fake it until you make it. Fake it until you make it doesn't actually exist at the level of national government. Um, that's not the kind of thing that government is. You can fake it until you make it when you're reporting on the EU and you can write stories for the Daily Mail and the Telegraph about the shape of bananas and uh, the, the ban that's, that's coming on uh, hedgehog-flavoured crisps. You can, you can do that and get away with it. But at the level of government, it really isn't possible. So international gas prices are what they are. Uh, the attempt to remove every gas boiler and replace it with a heat pump is what it is. Um, you, uh, Scotty would say you can't change the laws of physics. Not even Boris can change the laws of physics. Nor indeed can you change the laws of virology. So if you advise people to avoid crowds and at the same time refuse to close the pubs and the shops, then what you're trying to do, again, is get the outcome you want without actually having to suffer the downside that you dislike. As if you could lose weight and become fit without actually stopping eating cheese and going for a run. Um, and again, this kind of cakeism uh, just doesn't, doesn't work. Um, it works as a, as a manner when you're playing Charles I and everyone's kissing up to you and trying to win your confidence and win your ear and be a courtier and uh, be the person that speaks to you last because that's the person you listen to. Uh, that approach works, but it doesn't work um, when you're trying to hold a cabinet meeting and come to a conclusion, as Johnson did the other day, and it runs two hours and there's no conclusion because you don't want to offend anybody and you find it difficult to fall out with people. 
and uh, and Lord Frost um, walks away from your government and that shakes you because there's a sudden realisation that um, you can be in favour of high taxation and high public spending and the abandonment of most of what you claim to believe in and you can be in favour of uh, giving in a little bit on the European Court of Justice and the EU and you can be in favour of a little bit of uh, tougher COVID restrictions. But the trouble is that someone like Lord Frost, who's got a big civil service pension and a seat in the House of Lords, might actually say, I'm leaving, uh, and you've tried to talk me out of it, and that hasn't worked, so I really am leaving, and there's the letter, uh, and I'm gone. People accused, quite a few writers, uh, including, I think, Polly Toynbee in The Guardian, accused Frost of um, marching off in the huff. He did nothing of the sort. Uh, he tried his level best to actually defuse the, the resignation as much as he could and to limit the damage, but he just left. And, and that's the kind of hard fact that somebody like Johnson finds difficult to deal with um, because uh, he's in the habit of actually just um, staying in the moment and not panicking and finding that things typically come right. One of the things I noticed about public school boys at university as opposed to sort of working class louts like me was that they were very good at not making things worse. Deep in their bones, they knew that if you just shut up and took your punishment, probably things would be okay. And most of the things that you might think to do will make it worse. And Johnson is the absolute epitome of that approach. Keep smiling. Don't make people hate you any more than necessary. Stay in the moment. Don't look flustered. Don't panic. And it'll probably be okay. And uh, and the trouble is that when the, in the middle of a COVID pandemic, when you're uh, you know playing host to lots and lots of competing objectives, and you would like ideally not to have to choose the the the, the weighted adjusted balance between them. Um, if you just sit and do nothing, nothing will happen. Um, or more accurately, what will happen is you'll delay until after Christmas when the Omicron uh, problem might be worse than it was, and then you'll have a decision forced on you that you didn't want to make. Indeed, Bale suggests that one of the things that happened during COVID was that Johnson's limitations weren't a problem because what he could do was simply wait until the situation had become a crisis point, and then the experts would make the decision for him. So the, the scientific experts would say, we've now got a rate of... Uh, exponential growth that the only thing we can do is have a circuit break in lockdown and then the decision would make itself so Johnson wouldn't have to upset anybody because he could simply delay and dither until eventually the decision made itself. Now that uh, so-called masterly inactivity has become something that looks the same but is actually different because now he's got himself in a position where he can't actually do anything the other night, there was a massive rebellion. Uh, 99 Tory MPs voting against the government whip uh, against these new COVID measures, and they relied on the Labour Party to vote in favour. So now um, Tories are no longer concerned about being denied ministerial office. The COVID recovery group, the Steve Baker lot, weren't the only ones who voted against the government's measures. Others did as well. So Johnson's got a massive problem. The party in the country doesn't like uh, these massive tax rises. Uh, and they don't like all this public spending. And people no longer fear him, and they increasingly don't think that he's an election winner. So previously, he did nothing and dithered um, and got away with it, and it was seen to be charming. And uh, the, uh, the, the mud that would otherwise come from unpopular decisions didn't stick to him because he wasn't seen to be making them, except in a kind of formalistic way where he had to rubber stamp what, was, what had become inevitable. But now, because he's facing a leadership challenge, because Sunak and Truss and others are uh, manoeuvring for his job, because he's um, mired in scandal over all these supposed breaches of the, the COVID regulations, uh, and because there's you know huge discontent 
in the Tory back benches with I think his name's um, Tory nineteen twenty two back bench uh, committee chairman uh, Graham Bray is it? Um, he's openly speculating on uh, what will happen um, when Johnson's gone. Uh, Johnson needs to get a grip and regain the confidence of the party and so on. And he made a, I think he made a point of announcing that he would accept letters uh, asking for leadership contest by email, as well as more the more normal uh, process. So the, the the opposition politicians within his own party are parking their tanks on Johnson's lawn, and now he's left unable to act where previously he didn't act because he was indecisive and didn't want to upset anybody, and had discovered that he could make others bear the the cost um, of the policies that he made inevitable by his earlier choices, for example, in Brexit, um, that's all come to an end. And now he can't do things because then he doesn't actually master his party. He doesn't have the loyalty and the confidence of the backbench MPs or indeed his own cabinet. One of the things you learn when you study history at university and to some extent in school as well, is that the, the kings and queens story of what history is, um, of big decisions made by Henry VIII and so on, um, and Robert Bruce, that all goes out the window once you become slightly more sophisticated in your studies and you learn somebody at some point will probably say if it hadn't been Hitler it would have been somebody else because the sort of tectonic forces and uh, that were set in place after Versailles meant that there was inevitably going to be trouble uh, between Germany and the other European powers uh, or the sort of Marxist almost all economic history um, is hugely informed by the Marxist account of the relationship between economics and politics so at some point in your studies as an historian, um, you learn that it's naive to think that Palmerston was key in gunboat diplomacy because um, Britain's position in, uh, in 19th century Europe meant that there was always going to be a tendency to try and use force to get our own way uh, and so on. So that, that, that great man view of history gets displaced in, the, in the, the, the apprentice historian's mind this idea that everything is dictated by more fundamental forces, the playing out of bigger relationships. And Johnson, interestingly, for someone who fancies himself as the classicist and the great scholar, and as one academic said, an undergraduate degree and nothing else, it's not exactly a commitment to scholarship. But Johnson fancies himself as, the, as one of the history's great men who isn't dictated to by these events, but simply um, makes decisions and tries things and uh, changes the board. Uh, and does things that others thought impossible. A sort of Mustafa Kemal, you know, Kemal Ataturk. You can remake a country if you've got sufficient boldness and, and resolution. So he, he sees himself as someone entitled to um, disregard the rules and uh, of, of politics. Um, and an implication of that, I think, is bare, is that he disregards the rules more generally. So if you don't think that um, the treaties of Rome are a limitation in what you can achieve, why on earth would you think the COVID regulations are a limitation of what you can do? So the, uh, the sitting in the in the Downing Street garden, um, eating cheese and wine on a day when your health secretary was telling other people that they could only meet one person um, and that at two metres distance outdoors, and that doesn't strike him as being the kind of thing that's problematic because this is somebody who thinks he can remake Europe. So he can certainly remake uh, the, the COVID regulations to his own advantage. So Johnson, as I say, is, um, is a, a character who has um, created a situation for the Tory party, the like of which they haven't really seen um, since probably John Major in 92, um, 97. 
um, after Major wins the election, and then the Tory party begins to um, divide um, along the again along the European uh, line, and Major is left as this lame duck who can't lose to John Redwood, and he doesn't lose, um, so he, he, he suffers the Redwood challenge and survives it, and in some ways for the party it's the worst possible outcome, because then it's the long trudge, I nearly, I nearly said the long march, but the long trudge through to 1997, um, and the big defeat against Blair, because um, Johnson's in a similar position as, as Major, um, he's lost the loyalty and the support and the confidence of a large part of the party, both in Parliament and outside it. But it's not obvious that he can go anywhere because he's not really going to walk into a George Osborne-style future of investment banks and £10 million uh, contracts to sit as a non-executive chair on, on major companies. He's not that kind of character. Raphael Baer um, suggests that, in actual fact, a lot of what's been done uh, in the Tory uh, government, at the centre of the Tory party in, in government at the moment. It's a bit like he suggests, and this is an interesting observation, it's a bit like what happens in uh, revolutions when the Re revolutionary party, even if it was genuinely inspired by the ideology that it proclaims and that he uses to motivate the wider public, there comes a point when they realise the revolution can't work, isn't working and can't work. And at that point, you become uh, you know, Enver Hodja or Ceausescu or, uh, or Castro. Uh, you, be you become, or Iendi, you become somebody who um, is, is content, human nature being what it is. You become somebody uh, and you become a party. I'm just thinking of the Chinese Communist Party right now and the terrible allegations made against that senior official uh, regarding the, uh, I can't pronounce her name, the Chinese tennis player, uh, Xi Jinping. What's her name? Not, not, I shouldn't risk it. I shouldn't have risked it. But the... Um, uh, but the, the, the Chinese Communist Party has become um, a kind of kleptocracy um, in the way that the Putin regime is a kleptocracy. And uh, this, this happens um, when you realise that it's not going to be possible to bring about the kind of change that you may or may not have thought was possible when, you, when the revolution took place, but you've, which you've discovered in office is impossible. And what you don't do at that point is uh, make an open declaration to the people that, um, that, that there's a new future available to them and, and, and mandated by events and that they'll have to make a decision whether they want you to stay or go. The kind of, thinking about it actually, the kind of principled Angela Merkel, Merkel was a very kind of principled and, uh, and bureaucratic and blunt and um, in some ways, you know, unambitious politician. She, I mean, she left before she was pushed um, or certainly pushed hard. And uh, most people aren't Merkel. So what happens is the revolution is successful to the degree that it gets the revolutionary class, the Che's um, and the uh, Fidel's into a position where they can gorge themselves. And then they do, uh, long past the point where they actually thought that they could possibly deliver for the people what had originally got them into the position where they could gorge themselves. So you, you have the, uh, the sort of revolutionary party of Mexico, the PRI, I think, um, who 120 years ago, um, had their revolution in, in, in Mexico and then very quickly realised that it's not going to be possible to deliver real prosperity um, for the wider country. But they don't, they don't just disappear, they stay. And, uh, and the suggestion is that Johnson is at that stage and, and his government is at that stage. The, 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 the PPE contracts, the sort of slightly iffy relationships between um, you know, people in government and suppliers who've never once supplied anything that was remotely linked to PPE um, the attempt to retain Owen Patterson when the whole world could tell that it was never going to 
it was never going to stick. And the very attempt to get your MPs to um, disband the committee that, that found him uh, egregiously um, guilty and uh, and then reformulate the whole disciplinary process. That was just uh, not only a bridge too far, but several bridges too far. Uh, and this is this is the point that Johnson has reached in his uh, in his behaviour. This, this disinhibited, um, uh, revolutionary, revolutionary class beyond customary restraint, um, and an indecent uh, and an all too visible willingness uh, to stuff yourself. Marina Hyde in the Guardian today describes uh, Johnson as uh, at the party as um, casually stuffing half a camembert into his face um, while Dominic Cummings hides behind a tree drinking a vat of wine. Now, I don't think that's a reasonable characterisation of what uh, you could actually see in the picture from the number 10 garden, but it captures the mood, you know. There's something in uh, Johnson's unwillingness to even comb his hair and dress appropriately and... Uh, and stand up straight and stop smirking. Uh, there's something in, in the entire way he behaves which makes you think, you want me to think that you're a slob. You want me to think that you have no respect for me. Uh, you're insisting that I I know that you have no respect for me uh, and, and that I'll tolerate you regardless. You actually need me uh, to have to be the kind of person who doesn't deserve your best performance, you know? And, and folk are beginning to judge that that's exactly what Johnson is about. The, the Tory Brexiteers saw the, uh, the 2016 vote as a revolt of the ordinary people against the, uh, the political class, against the judges, against the bureaucrats, uh, against the uh, Jolly and Moms and, uh, and Jessica Simers, the, the, the QCs that uh, object to Brexit, against the Jonathan Porter civil servants who again object to Brexit. Um, against the, the Supreme Court, the Lady Hales and so on, uh, Sumption, all the judges that voted in favour of Gina Miller's application. The, the 2016 vote was seen to be this kind of popular rebellion against that whole London-centric class of folk who think they can tell other folk what to do. And this was the warrant, this was what gave Johnson his, uh, his direct uh, warrant from the people, his, his commission that allowed him to do what other politicians can't do. Uh, and it's now all coming to an end. Because it turns out that what other politicians can't do um, is not just a function of their uh, corruption and their laziness. It's a function of how the world is. The world doesn't just bend to your wishes in the way that Johnson would like it to. The trouble is that the Tory party um, has become convinced that, uh, or an element in the Tory party has become convinced that, uh, that Johnson's kind of um, defiant uh, rule-breaking does indicate something deep about how the country works. So right now, Chris Whitty, uh, the scientific officer, the medical advisor, who contradicted Johnson, uh, was thrown out to contradict Johnson, actually, was, was placed in a position where he was invited to contradict Johnson when he suggested that you should pick and choose um, which events you, you attend, even if there are no legal restrictions. So you shouldn't go to places where you might become infected if you want to guarantee that you can visit your family at Christmas without infecting them. So Whitty was put in a position where he, he said that. I noticed today the uh, the kid that grabbed him in a headlock uh, was appearing on a Zoom call in the magistrate's court um, with the prosecution and the defence having already agreed the facts, but he in his dressing gown, supposedly with COVID, uh, not really understanding the process. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, it's on the Guardian website. It's worth reading. Uh, quite an amusing account of uh, his attempt to 
do what Johnson does with process. The the, the guy that grabbed Whitty in a headlock is uh, is in court. The case has been continued until March until uh, uh, January, I think. But uh, but it was interesting watching somebody try to do to the magistrates' court what Johnson tried to do to the Supreme Court, and to just um, bluff your case and see whether they'll give in. But uh, but the wider Tory party has become possessed of uh, a kind of Johnsonian uh, defiance and chutzpah. And, and that's led to this kind of unfortunate situation where you can't have a consensus on COVID regulations and similar things because we've now got to the point where we don't trust the experts because people like Johnson are not seen to publicly trust the experts. Um, right now, they're trying to escape um, the... Uh, the necessity for if if you believe the figures that they that they claim to believe about the spread of uh, this new variant of, of covid i mean i, I personally am hugely skeptical about whether any of this makes any sense but if you believe um what they claim about first of all lethality and second rate of spread then the conclusion follows those two premises mandate the conclusion you have to bring in restrictions you can doubt the premises and i do but if you do what Johnson does and claim to accept the premises, you have to accept the conclusion, which is restrictions. But they're not doing that. And uh, they're not doing that because there's a big element in the Tory party that would hang them if they did. So in essence, the, the argument is that um, what was attractive in Johnson before, which is his just reeking patrician entitlement. Um, and as I said to somebody um, the other day, this is the, the thing that's interesting about about Johnson is that he's not actually properly rich. Um, indeed, the whole group of people who surrounded um, Johnson at uh, Eton and then, and then at Oxford, if you look at the Osbournes and uh, and Johnson and Cameron and the rest of them, they're kind of on the fringes of properly rich, but they're not properly rich. Um, I was at York University with a kid who was heir to a massive brewing fortune. I mean, really properly rich. And uh, he, uh, he, he wore his wealth lightly. Um, as he, as he wore wrecked clothing. And uh, I always remember him arranging for a keg of um, beer to be delivered to a party <laughs> with, a, with a thing on the top of it so you could help yourself to unlimited lager, still at Artois Lager. Um, so he, he, had, he had serious money, I mean, proper, you know, I think hundreds of millions. Uh, but the Johnsons, and Johnson's father was a diplomat. So the, he, would, he would have struggled mightily to pay the, the fees for, for Eton. Um, and these people are not, uh, as I say, the kind of folk who can uh, who can give up the opportunity to become rich. Um, the reason why Cameron ended up in such terrible trouble with uh, Greens Hill Capital, uh, and it then went bust, and it then became obvious that Cameron had been lobbying Rishi Sunak to try and get money to bail out Greens Hill before it went bust, because if it didn't go bust, um, it looked as if his share options would vest and he would get 70 million, and that 70 million would properly push him over the edge. That would make him properly wealthy. But Cameron comes from the kind of family where his mother gave 200,000 um, to him before uh, it looked as if she would be heading the point where she would head towards her inevitable end. All of us are going to die. So she's in a, in a, in a bid to, to escape inheritance tax, it looked as if she was making a, a gift to him of 200,000. Now, for most people, 200,000 is a lot of money, but it's not proper money. It's not serious money. It's not Elon Musk money or Jeff Bezos money or anything like that kind of money. Um, serious money comes in at the kind of money which if invested allows you to be um, a thousand pounds a day rich. A person that can afford to spend a thousand pounds a day is properly rich. Um, and that basically is, you know, 10 million.
10 million at uh, at 4% um, is 400,000. So that kind of money is properly rich. And that's the kind of money you get if you're George Osborne, you leave government and you quickly get yourself places with BlackRock uh, and other similar um, organisations. Um, Johnson and Cameron don't really come from that kind of money. They act as if they do. And uh, what Johnson reminds me of is Ted Heath. Ted Heath had a yacht uh, and Ted Heath, uh, I think I'm right in saying played the organ and the piano to a very high standard and Ted Heath was a, a tank officer I think during the Second World War and was loved by his men um, and uh, he was loved by his men because he seemed to them to be the absolute essence of upper uh, class insouciant disregard for personal safety and concern for the welfare of the men. In actual fact Heath wasn't, he was very much middle class and it was an act, he was, he was acting as if he came from that class but didn't if you want to see somebody who genuinely comes from that class, look at uh, James Blunt, who really is proper foppish blues and royals um, you know, aristocracy. Johnson um, isn't from that group, although he, he acts as if he is. And uh, it strikes me, watching his performance, that there is something lacking in it. And he knows there's something lacking in it. And Raphael Baer suggests that the big issue at the moment is that the public now realise there's something lacking in it. Johnson doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, if you want to, uh, if you want to explain the rise of Johnson, we need we need to take a look at ourselves. Ross Perot, when he was running for the U.S. presidency, I think I think in '92, it might have been '96, but I think it was '92. He said this. Um, Ross Perot on his Reform Party ticket um, said, "I'm going to sort this fiscal deficit, this um, this tremendous borrowing by the federal government." So I'm going to fix this so there'll be no there'll be no increase in the borrowing of the federal government and everybody cheered and he said and I'll do it without raising taxation and everybody cheered even harder and then he said because what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you pay the taxes that you currently avoid but are due to pay and at that there was a sort of pin drop everyone suddenly wasn't so happy anymore because Ross Perot knew that nearly everybody was fiddling their taxes they were claiming deductions for meals because they were claiming to speak to their friends about possible business opportunities so half the time, you know, you you deduct the cost of the, the dinner for, from your tax and I'll deduct it from mine. And we'll be having business discussions at every single dinner we ever eat. Uh, we want to believe that um, the, uh, the limitations that politicians tell us exist don't exist. We want to believe that great riches are our, um, you know, fate. I, I'm just thinking, the... Um, there's an article in the Financial Times today saying that Bitcoin is much worse than a Ponzi scheme um, uh, or Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Most of the people who invested with Madoff got their money back. It was only the ones that invested at the end who lost everything. Bitcoin is an absolute and utter uh, disgrace of a Ponzi scheme that can't possibly work and it's necessarily going to explode in everyone's face. And, uh, and everybody who is really dispassionate and, and well-educated or reasonably savvy about how currencies work uh, knows this to be the case. But why are so many people drawn in? Well, they're drawn in for exactly the same reason that they're drawn into tales from YouTube stars about how to become drop shipping experts and how to become influencers on Instagram and all the rest of it. We're all terribly susceptible to stories about how we can become rich without effort. The, the appeal of Scottish nationalism is the appeal to... Um, benefit without effort 
you know the uh, the the oil will be ours the resources will be ours we uh, we have this much of europe's exploitable coastline we have this much of europe's um, forestry nobody ever says we'll be able to work like hell and work our fingers to the bone uh, and become wealthy um, after enormous effort um, and paying huge taxes to help the poor if you look at the pitch made by scottish nationalists it's the pitch uh, that uh, that anybody who who was anxious not to work would regard as attractive nobody ever promises us complete and utter hell indeed andrew wilson's growth commission report promised as complete and utter hell and as a consequence was never referenced again by anybody uh, at, the, at the heart of the nationalist movement. So the reason why Boris Johnson rises or rose is because we like the idea that the limitations that uh, politicians tell us exist don't. I remember I used to show a tape with Peter Middleton, um, a Treasury official, Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, he, said, uh, he said politicians need to explain to their uh, supporters that things are not going to get done, things aren't possible. And the way they do it is they talk about the dead hand of the Treasury. Especially if you're a Labour politician, you tell the conference that the, the dead hand of the Treasury is preventing you doing all these wonderful things. So we like the idea that um, it's possible to become, you know, prosperous without undergoing huge amounts of, of, of difficulty and, and trial and tribulation and education and effort. So the, 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 the casual approach to life that Boris Johnson takes is one that we find inspiring because we think in principle it might be open to us. And we particularly like the approach to government that he takes because we've always had a suspicion that governors are denying us um, what they could readily provide. I was speaking to a pal I know who said that a girl with an Edinburgh University degree um, said that uh, the COVID bailouts, the furlough scheme and all the rest of it demonstrated the government had plenty of money to help everybody and it was just a kind of wickedness that meant that they didn't do it. So the, uh, the, you know, the, the superficiality of our worldview uh, allows the rise of somebody like um, Boris Johnson. It's the same thing as back in the 60s with uh, Kennedy and Nixon. In the first uh, TV debates, famously Kennedy won on television and Nixon uh, won on radio because Kennedy was younger and better looking and taller and took the makeup before um, the interview and therefore he didn't look green because he allowed himself to be made up and Nixon wasn't keen on getting foundation plastered on his face. Um, we, we like, I mean, almost always it's the younger, taller, more charismatic, better looking candidate who wins. People really do rate politicians in terms of how they appear. And uh, we do this to ourselves. Now, of course, Johnson is neither uh, tall nor uh, nor particularly uh, Kennedy-esque. You know, he's, he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't look like the, the charming young senator from, uh, from, from a Yankee background. But, uh, but he does have a kind of, uh, have I got news for new appeal? You know, he, ma he made his name um, in, in that kind of environment, that kind of London-centric media environment. And, uh, and people liked him for that. And when you combine likability with this very obvious public performance, um, which suggests that um, most of what worried you is not to be worried about. If you're worried about leaving the European Union, if you're worried about the pound in your pocket, if you're worried about these uh, daily little uh, concerns, don't worry about it. Because here's somebody who seems to be a buffoon and does really well from it. Uh, and he's in exactly the same position as um, people in uh, in public life um, on, you know, celebrity shows uh, on, on desert islands. 
they, they pander. The very existence of these these opportunities uh, involves uh, subconsciously telling the rest of us that it isn't necessary to become a dentist. Remember the Rocky Horror show, Son, Be a Dentist. Being a dentist is the classic high-paid job that's extremely difficult to qualify for and absolute hell on a daily basis, but it's highly paid. Uh, and what Boris Johnson and people like him demonstrate is that you don't have to be a dentist. And unfortunately, probably, uh, the truth is that you do have to be a dentist. It's the dentists have got the, the steady high earnings. The Boris Johnsons are parasitic on millions trying to be Boris Johnson and failing. The world is full of failed Boris Johnsons. Um, the uh, All the stars who never were are parking cars and pumping gas in the words of the song. So uh, you, you, the, we've, only, we've only got room for a very small number of parasites because otherwise the animal dies. In some ways Machiavelli nailed uh, the, the, the reality of the Johnson regime. Machiavelli described uh, the incoming prince as finding a, a, an open door often because people uh, think that a new prince will mean a radical change in their circumstances for the better. And then, of course, they find out that things have not become better, they've become worse. And Machiavelli says, every change creates a toothing for the other. In other words, once you've actually seen one change of regime, um, a bit like a French Republic um, or uh, Weimar Germany, once you've seen one change of regime, you suddenly begin to realise that if, if it can happen once, it can happen again. And if one change didn't produce an improvement in your circumstances, well, perhaps another one would. And to some extent, Johnson's a victim of that. He, he demonstrated that a buffoon uh, can become a prime minister. And once you've seen that, you think to yourself, well, you know, we've, we've explored the, the outer limits or what look to be the outer limits of the, the, the office now. Uh, let's, let's try something different again. Let's see whether we can roll the dice a second time. Uh, and maybe, you know, the, uh, the, the possibility of becoming... Uh, rich through politics rather than the long, slow trudge of economics. Uh, maybe that can be realised in, in the next person. It's also fair to acknowledge that a lot of what Johnson said, and others said as well, David Davies uh, and Lord Frost in particular, because Frost made it stick, a lot of what they said about the EU was actually true. The linkages that exist between, for example, the free movement of workers and free movement of goods and services are artificial linkages. There's a link between these things in the same way that there's a link between paying the protection money to the mafia and your nightclub not burning down. There's no intrinsic link between the so-called four freedoms. People continually talk about the internal market and the single market, and they use the terms interchangeably. The, the single market is just specifications. The internal market is the so-called four freedoms, uh, free movement of uh, workers, uh, capital, services, and... Uh, Goods, obviously. So the the, 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 the the right to invest in any country, the right to move and work in any country, uh, and the right to sell uh, goods and services across the entire uh, 28, uh, these are the, the internal market's freedoms. And there's a link between free trade and um, the right for workers to move in the same way that there's a link between, you know, um, you pleasing me and... Uh, and me doing something that pleases you. It's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm making the link. I'm saying, if you do this, I'll do that. But there's a, there isn't an intrinsic link. I mean, I could do the thing. I could I could clean your car as an act of goodwill, um, but uh, I, I choose not to. And the EU, there's there's no intrinsic link between um, free trade. I mean, the, the Canada free trade deal made that obvious. They agreed a deal with Canada, and they were pretty open about the motivation. Canada was too far away 
um, for them to plausibly coerce. And the relationship between Canada and the United States was self-evidently much more important than any relationship they could have with the EU. So there was never going to be any possibility that the Canadians would accept uh, a whole load of irrelevant impositions for a free trade deal. But the assumption is that because we're 20 miles off the French coast, we'll have to accept a whole load of irrelevant considerations for a free trade deal. And, uh, and that proved not to be so. The people who said that you could disentangle the EU and separate out the things that were intrinsic to membership from the things that weren't, were right. Frost was right in that regard. Johnson was right in that regard. David Davis was right in that regard. John Redwood was right in that regard. Dominic Raab was right in that regard. So the Brexiteers were right about some things. So when you, when you, when you consider the rise of Johnson, uh, we shouldn't forget the extent to which um, people who insisted that black was white helped. All the people who um, allowed the media to uh, help them to do what the public knew was false. If you think back to the, the pre-2016 vote, nobody in the media, certainly not in the Jon Snow or, or BBC Remain support and media, nobody said, what exactly is the link between free trade, the movement of goods and the free movement of workers? I mean, we've got free trade with loads and loads of places that we've never had the free movement of workers with. So why on earth does there have to be free movement? The Americans don't have free movement. The Americans have got a North American free trade agreement that runs from Mexico through the United States to Canada, and there's no free movement of workers. So what is the actual intrinsic link between the free movement of workers and the free movement of goods and services? There is no such link. The EU is telling us that if we don't agree to the free movement of workers, then they won't give us the free movement of goods. But there's no intrinsic link between the two. This is just simply coercion. Now, nobody in the media said that, but most of the public or many of the public knew that that was the, the situation. So when you have politicians like Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Tory uh, leader, when you've got politicians like Ruth Davidson telling people and having the media help them to tell people something that they know fine well is false, it really helps people like Johnson because he represents then that part of the broad establishment which isn't, which isn't actually... Um, in cahoots with the media and trying to mislead the ordinary folk. Well, that's the perception. So Johnson rose um, and probably shouldn't have, but that was in part because of the situation that was contrived by the media and by this uh, big slice of our politicians um, before uh, 2019. Johnson, Johnson was facilitated precisely because um, people who should have known better especially in the broadcast media, less so the papers. The papers are entitled to be biased, but the broadcast media isn't. And the broadcast media was a disgrace before the, the 2016 vote uh, and allowed the Remain side to be seen to be um, the uh, purveyors of stuff that wasn't being scrutinised, should be scrutinised, um, and therefore was to be suspected. If something, if something is given to you and forced down your throat every time you turn on the news, um, and it's flawed and known to be flawed. Um, it becomes, it becomes, you, you become yet more suspicious, and you think it probably is even worse than you suspect. A bit like um, the O.J. Simpson uh, conviction. O.J. Simpson plainly had evidence planted against him um, by the cops. The blood that was dripped around his uh, bedroom was blood that had preservative in it from the L.A. crime lab. So somebody had plainly taken blood from the crime lab and dripped it around his socks and his bedroom um, with a view to strengthen the case against him. The glove that was found over his wall was thrown there almost certainly by one of the cops because a person can't accidentally lose two gloves. 
It's impossible to imagine one leather glove coming off OJ's hand during the assault, not being picked up, and then another one accidentally coming off his hand in the grounds of his own home and not being picked up. That doesn't make any sense. What's most likely is that uh, both gloves were dropped at the scene and one was picked up and thrown over the wall. Now, because people couldn't understand that it's possible to frame a guilty man, OJ was acquitted. In exactly the same way, the Remain side was so obviously flawed. People thought it had to be really fundamentally flawed in ways that they hadn't been told about and that they couldn't see. So they, they knew there was no intrinsic link between the free movement of people and the free movement of goods, and they were being misled with, in, in regard to that. And once you think that you've been misled, you start to think, well, what else am I not being told? What else uh, is defective in this case that you present to me? Uh, now that I've seen at least part of it is defective and that you're hiding its defect. And of course, the same holds true in Northern Ireland. The, uh, you can't have goods that haven't had duty imposed on them moving into the EU's um, uh, common external tariff area. The, uh, the, the EU imposes tariffs on everything coming in from outside and then removes them internally. Now, you can't have, therefore, goods from the United Kingdom coming into the EU um, unless they've had the correct, or rather, more accurately, you can't have goods coming into the United Kingdom from somewhere else and then moving into the EU without having the duties imposed. We've got a no duty, um, no tariff uh, regime uh, with the EU, but the United States doesn't. So if you were an entrepreneur in Northern Ireland, um, it might be possible for you to exploit that by buying things that would otherwise have a duty imposed on them and then bringing them into the uh, Republic uh, through Northern Ireland or anywhere else, actually. Um, but it's, it would be much easier across that land border in Northern Ireland. Now, this can be dealt with. Um, the, uh, the, 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 there were already differences between Northern Ireland and the Republic that could have been exploited by people who were looking to break the law. And there were various ways that was dealt with by the uh, by the EU and by the UK in cooperation. So the the idea that somebody could actually trade in significant amounts across that land border by bringing things in and then avoiding the imposition of the common external tariff because the thing hadn't been made within the UK, it was it was liable to duty. The idea that anybody could do that on a sustained basis. You have to you have to basically doubt the British government's good offices and the integrity of public officials in order to worry about that. Because what you have to be claiming is that when we were members of the EU, uh, and indeed at um, at Dover right now, at Felixstowe or whatever, but what you have to be claiming is that um, when we were members of the EU, we enforced the common external tariff and didn't allow you know things to be brought in. But now that we're not members, we're incapable of imposing the common external tariff on, a, on, a, on the island of Ireland. Now, why would that be true? You know, it's, it's very obviously, if you, if you trust us to actually impose these, these duties um, when we're members, you have to trust us to impose these duties when we're not members, because we haven't become suddenly dishonest, um, you wouldn't have thought. Or, or more accurately, the incentives towards dishonesty were there when we were members. So the, the idea that significant quantities of non-duty, non-tariff goods could come in from wherever, you know, Brazil, through Northern Ireland, into the Republic, and thence into the, the internal market. Because if you think about it, there's a limit to what the Republic could absorb by the way of uh, additional um, goods that were price competitive because they hadn't had Brazilian beef. If there's a tariff on Brazilian beef, there's an incentive to bring it into Northern Ireland and then ship it across the border. But the idea that other beef suppliers in the Republic wouldn't notice a downturn in domestic demand 
the idea that Irish customs officers wouldn't be able to raid um, restaurants and find out where they were getting the beef from, the idea that disgruntled chefs wouldn't have an incentive to uh, grass up their employer when they'd been fired, it's all nonsense, you know. And to try and move things from the Republic into the wider EU, uh, the idea that you could avoid uh, the, the customs guys seeing the increase in, in movement uh, out of the Republic um, into the rest of the EU, it's just false. So the, the people who said that they were making an issue, Barnier and others, of course, Michel Barnier, the EU's negotiator, got caught um, saying that they would use Northern Ireland as a leverage point uh, to keep the UK in the internal market. They got caught saying that. And uh, so we know that this was the deliberate. Uh, they, they weren't actually concerned about the, uh, the importation of non-duty goods into the, the internal market into the, the area bounded by the customs union. They were using Northern Ireland to try and actually keep the UK in the internal market. And uh, again, Johnson and Frost and others were right. Uh, people who said it was impossible to negotiate an open border, that there would have to be uh, these um, border posts that would either, either the whole UK would stay in the internal market or there would be border posts and that would break the Good Friday Agreement. That turned out to be false. And the fact that the EU is continuing to try and use Northern Ireland to uh, disrupt the Brexit process and uh, put in courage les autres to make it less likely that another country like the Netherlands uh, or Poland would actually dare to try and leave. The fact that they're still doing that doesn't mean that Johnson and Frost and the rest were wrong. They were right. The EU um, could easily allow people to have an open relationship, a trade relationship with them without having to accept things like the free movement of workers. In some ways, the, the real tragedy of Johnson's government is that it's just one more example of why our system of government isn't very good. Um, Johnson rose because party members voted for him to become party leader. And because we don't have a separation of powers the way the United States does, um, if you become party leader of the, uh, the Tory party, there's a very good chance you're going to become prime minister. And also as well, because we have an electoral system uh, that is... That it, it would be hard to imagine a poorer electoral system. Uh, we've got an electoral system where the parties control candidate selection, unlike the United States, where they have primary elections, and people vote slavishly in party lines. And the consequence of all of that is that we end up with a parliament which is uh, stuffed full of people who are ambitious to become ministers, and therefore, because there's no separation of powers, the prime minister's got huge powers of patronage. And uh, they also know if they get deselected, then they won't be returned as MPs. So someone like Amber Rudd or Dominic Grieve um, can oppose the government, but they know that if they lose the Tory label, then they won't be re-elected. So we end, we've got a very, very poor political system, and it has been poor for a long time. We get massive changes in policy from one government to the next because we don't have the kind of muddy, in inverted commas, politics, which would be a lot better and a lot more stable. The voter is possessed of a whole load of beliefs about the doctrine of the mandate. And... Uh, if you think about it, the 2010-2015 coalition government was pretty stable and pretty successful in a lot of ways. The 2019 uh, Johnson government is, uh, even for someone who's in the centre-right like me, uh, a pretty um, right-wing government that's causing a lot of discontent among people who didn't vote for them and for some among some who did. The reason why the, the Tory party is looking as if it's going to lose these so-called red wall seats and the next election, unless something dramatic happens, is going to be a, a dramatic move against uh, the Tory party. The reason why that's happening is because the electoral system facilitated uh, the disaster of uh, the 2016 
2019 period, where uh, as long as you retained the party label, you would get re-elected, almost certainly. Some Tories lost their seats in 2017. But as long as you retained the party label, um, voters are not in a strong position to express their dissatisfaction. Uh, the only people that matter, and in, in, in that period, the people that mattered uh, were, were the Tory party um, association chairman and to some extent the wider membership uh, who might trigger uh, an election contest and, and might try and deselect you, which is very unlikely to happen. So the, 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 the parliament um, was set up to be um, quite capable of dysfunction. And uh, if, if you think about back to the, the period 2016, uh, 2019, when repeated attempts were made to marshal a majority behind some kind of compromise, the most obvious one being being the customs union, but not in the internal market. Um, and that way you can have complete you know, regulatory freedom, but you'll impose the tariffs and therefore there won't be problems um, uh, in, in Ireland or at, uh, at Dover, because you'll be a part of the same customs union, the same scheme of uh, WTO scheme of, of duties. Now that was a that was a fairly obvious compromise. If individual MPs had been um, elected from single transferable vote constituencies, where there was a, a multi-member constituency, six or seven MPs being elected, and they knew that they had a real chance of picking up twos and threes and fours in the preferences of Liberal Democrat voters, Tories would know that if they if they voted for the customs union, they'd be able to say on the doorstep that they'd voted for the customs union and they would pick up Liberal Democrat second and third choices. In those circumstances, there'd been a far more sophisticated approach by the Parliament. Um, I think many MPs, even after years of debate, still didn't understand the difference between the customs union, the internal market and the single market. Um, and it's because for a lot of them, the only thing that mattered was retaining the party label. And uh, if your association was hugely um, pro-Brexit, then you were hugely pro-Brexit and you retained the label. And, and that was all you, you needed to know. Uh, and, uh, and as I say, the political system is a disaster and it precipitates crises. It makes it possible for dramatic things to happen because uh, it makes it possible for uh, MPs to be irresponsible. They don't have to become well-read, thoughtful people with a broad appeal across a swathe of, of parties and, and sentiments because there's never going to be second and third and fourth and fifth preferences that matter. Um, we had the opportunity to do something to address this in 2011 and we rejected it. So we've left ourselves with a parliamentary system with no separation of powers, no Donald Trump, no Joe Biden, no separate elected executive. So we've left the Prime Minister in charge of patronage, and it's a rare person, it's a Lord Frost who can actually say, I don't need the 40,000, you know, or the, the 60,000, I don't need the ministerial salary, I don't need your good opinion. Uh, I can go back to the Scotch Whiskey Association and get paid the same money, I can be a member of the House of Lords. It's a rare person like Frost who can do that. Most of the MPs, most of the time, are, uh, are controllable by patronage and uh, most of the MPs uh, almost all of the time are concerned about a very small group of a selectorate, the people who decide whether they'll be candidates and all of that brings about a, a situation where the, the political system really isn't responsive. I noticed, um, what's his name, Manchin I think it is, the, uh, the Democrat who held up um, the Joe Biden stimulus plan, Virginia I think Democrat, Manchin um, was also a guy who co-signed or co-authored uh, a, a gun control bill after the Sandy Hook shooting. Now, how is it possible for somebody representing a place like Virginia to be against a whole lot of spending that might suit Virginia? How is it possible for him to be in favour of some gun control measures 
And the answer is he's got a far more fluid, complex, difficult situation to manage than he would have if the parties controlled candidate selection and there were no primary elections and the voters weren't prepared to vote across party lines. In the UK, the voters rarely will vote across party lines, 2019 being the exception because people were so angry about what happened after the Brexit vote. Um, but people generally won't vote across party lines and the parties control candidate selection. And in that context, you can have somebody like Boris Johnson be selected by a very small number of party members. I was one at the time. But Johnson gets selected by a small number of party members um, and then becomes the leader of the largest party and becomes prime minister without any real obligation to um, cultivate uh, support in the wider public. People say he won the 2019 election. <sighs> Jeremy Corbyn gifted the 2019 election to the Tory party uh, to a significant degree, and the parliament gifted the election to the Tory party uh, by failing to actually deliver the Brexit vote. But this is a political system that, uh, in, the, in the so-called mother of all parliaments, is really quite dysfunctional. And uh, the voter, in a sense, is too lazy to get something better. The voter doesn't feel as if they should take a care about what their individual representative uh, believes. Uh, I campaigned for Paul Masterton in 2019, uh, and he lost the seat to Kirsten Oswald in uh, East Renfrewshire. And Masterton, um, because he was selected by that constituency, um, which was very pro-Remain, but at the same time, he was part of a party that had promised to deliver um, Brexit and, uh, and was under the Tory whip. So what he got for his troubles was the help of some senior Tories. Lord Ahmed was up the day that I was there, one day that I was there, pouring rain. Uh, there's the uh, avuncular, um, soaked um, Tory Lord out knocking on the doors trying to help Paul. Trying to help Paul essentially um, address the, the problem caused by... Uh, his, his loyalty to the party, which was necessarily going to cost him a ton of votes. It was death on the doorstep, and it meant that he lost the seat. Uh, and this is this is a dysfunctional system. If Masterton had been, and Masterton is a much, much, much better representative than Kirsten Oswald. If Masterton had been elected from the greater, greater Glasgow area as one of AMPs, um, he would have been able to produce a nuanced approach to the Brexit process that would have won the support of enough voters in the greater Glasgow area to be returned. Um, so we, we've, we've created a, a, a monster over the last 150 years, uh, a, a democratic parliament that's elected by the public, but still retains the party structure from 150 years ago, where MPs weren't even paid and were, uh, and were you know, to some significant degree independent of the voters, not quite Burke and representatives, but very nearly. So we've got a very dysfunctional political system and it produces calamities um, like the Johnson government. If you ask the public um, what exactly the Great Barrington Declaration meant, if you ask them who John Ioannidis was, if you ask them what Professor Woolhouse said about COVID and lockdowns, Edinburgh University epidemiologist, if you ask them what Gupta, the Oxford epidemiologist, had said about COVID, if you ask them what Loughborough University has said about the number of COVID deaths, if you ask people to give you any fact or opinion from an authoritative source whatsoever that questioned the dominant narrative. In other words, the dominant narrative is COVID is extremely dangerous and the costs of addressing it through the kind of measures that we've been using for the last two years are modest compared to the cost of COVID. And therefore we should continue in the way that we've been 
continue the way we've been acting. If you ask people to give you one single dissenting opinion from any authoritative source, Woolhouse says, Professor Woolhouse, Emory University says, uh, lockdown was a mistake. Uh, we must never do it again. We did it for the want of something better to do. Ioannidis said back in March, April, that COVID was 50 to 80 times more prevalent in the community in, I think, California than it was than it was thought to be. And therefore, the true infection fatality rate was a tiny fraction of what people thought. And indeed, the American CDC, the Center for Disease Control, admitted that it was 0.28%. Steve Baker, the uh, dissenting uh, Tory MP, wrung from the government an answer in a ministerial question. What is the present infection fatality rate for COVID? And the answer is 0.00, whatever. It's, um, it's 1 in 10,000. One person in 10,000. Six weeks ago, a month ago, six weeks ago, he asked the question. Uh, and the answer was 1 in 10,000. 10,000 people get infected with COVID, one dies. That's the present infection fatality rate. If you asked any member of the public to give you one such dissenting fact, I think it'd be very unlikely they would. And there's a reason for this, which is that we operate at the level of superficial um, you know, understanding. Peter Mandelson, as I've said before, Peter Mandelson had the final word on the reality of the public's understanding of politics. Mandelson, back in 1995-96, was getting a lot of blowback from Labour MPs about the Labour message. Education, education, education. Toughen crime, toughen the causes of crime. No tax rises for the first term of a Labour government. Okay, that was Labour's commitment in 1997. And MPs were told to say this every single time they were asked anything about anything. Just keep saying it. And uh, they rebelled. They said, I feel stupid. You know, interviewers are sneering at me and laughing at me. This is getting ridiculous. And Mandelson, who'd worked in television, Mandelson said, let me tell you, when you've got to the point where you feel humiliated saying this, you have just begun to penetrate the consciousness of the average voter. That's the reality of political communication. You have just begun, right? Now, people think, how is it possible for a buffoon to be elected to the office of prime minister? And the answer is, it lies in us. It lies in us. Um, the, the, the fault isn't really Boris Johnson's. Uh, the fault lies in us. We don't care enough to not elect Boris Johnson. It's not that we wanted Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. It's that we don't actually spend enough time thinking about politics to even know what it is that we should want or that we do want. Um, we don't actually have enough understanding of how the system works to make a link between what we'd like to happen and who we vote for. Um, we're completely utterly ignorant. Most people who voted for the Tories in 2019 think they voted for Boris Johnson and will say they voted for Boris Johnson because they don't really understand how the party system works or the parliamentary system or the absence of a separation of powers or anything else. So um, who's to blame for the uh, situation that we're right now in? Is it Boris Johnson? Well, not ultimately. Ultimately, it's our fault. Peace.